Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome back, everybody. And today we're going to be continuing our discussion on the China wine market. And we're going to be talking about different pathways for brands to enter the Chinese market with Ian Ford and Nicole Mao from Namility Asia. If you're interested in their backgrounds, please check out the previous episode where they went in depth on how they got into the wine industry. So how do the Chinese buy wine for themselves? Is it mostly in wine stores or grocery stores like it is in parts of the world or online? What are the main channels that Chinese buy wine? I think all channels exist everywhere. Corporate purchase, food distributors, and consumers buying direct online. Because in China, you know, we have a very simple system. Importer who can import and sell, distribute directly. There is no middleman, different layers you need to go through like in the U.S. Or retailers, you can buy a bottle of wine from a liquor and cigarette shop at the corner. So there, there is pretty much everywhere. It's not limited in any way. And consumers probably have purchased a habit of purchase where they use, where they take trust. It's probably a supermarket like Hema or Jindong. They trust that they know they'll go for it. And sometimes it's maybe their friends who is a distributor or their friends who run a wine bar. It's all different channels. So does that mean that it's very fractured in wine retail? So there's not like a big chain like an odd bins in the UK or Total Wine in the US or Costco that is dominant? Yeah, it's super fragmented as the market, you know, is different regions, different people have different habits of consumption, different flavor preference, looking at consumers in the North and consumers in the South, they have very different flavor preference. So yeah, it's really, really fragmented. There isn't, I don't think there is one channel that is, or one brand that sells the most wine. Is there any like big go-to place for some, maybe like some of the big cities like Shanghai or Beijing? Is there a go-to retailer that can consider themselves the leader? I'll probably say one of the, if we're talking about retailers, then Sam's Club is probably a notable outlet that is uh, quite well known for their sales of wine in the past years since they've established themselves in Shenzhen early on. I think that was their first shop in China, Sam's Club in Shenzhen. Sam's Club, the one that's like from Walmart in the US? Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Sam's Club, yeah. They've done pretty well and they've maintained, you know, in the past years and now they're doing their members mark, members mark wine. So that's probably a consumer, a mass market consumer would probably say if they don't know anything about wine, they'll probably go go to Sam's Club or they might go on Jindong to see what's available. Or Hema. Hema is another one. Online grocery is so indispensable right now in China. We haven't been, I haven't been to the supermarket 
for as long as I can remember. Everything is bought online. And if I urgently need a bottle of something, I might just go on Homa and buy a bottle there and it gets delivered in 30 minutes. Oh, wow. So online ordering is very important, as you just mentioned. I've heard that online via some of the social platforms like WeChat is also important. How big is that relative to the rest of the market? We don't have really accurate data on different channels because you know data in China is really quite hard to get. Talking to different importers, online is probably taking 10 to 20% of their sales in average. Some may be less. But I think 10 to 20 is probably a rough estimate, like proper estimation of the percentage online takes. Because there are channels like distribution that is that takes much bigger volume. Online platforms, there are so many. Alibaba system and Jindong and WeChat. All system, it depends really on the vendor who does well on what platform. It's still quite fragmented as well. There are some vendors, they run their WeChat store, they run their Tmall store, and they run their Jindong store. So every platform they can be on their own. And there's Pindodo, there's, uh, there are so many platforms out there. It depends on probably where they started first, how many followers they have built over the years, and how much traction, how much traffic, and how much money you spent on promoting your own shop as well. Yeah, I would just add to that, I think, for the listeners in, in Europe and North America, you have platforms that are similar to... Western platforms like TikTok, which here is called Douyin, and it's actually it actually is the same company. But in China, WeChat, which is originally was sort of like WhatsApp, but has evolved into something much greater than that. WeChat is a massive e-commerce platform. Douyin, which is the equivalent of TikTok, is a massive live streaming sales platform. So when you think about WhatsApp and TikTok, and here in China, these are major sales platforms where the consumer who's watching the video can immediately click and buy, or the consumer that is that is following somebody on WeChat can click product that they're featuring. Imagine if somebody on Instagram, you know, if Kim Kardashian was promoting something on, you know, on Instagram and you could immediately buy it through Instagram. I mean, that, that's effectively what you see here with all of the platforms here. They have e-commerce infrastructure. So they, as a commercial operator, you can sell through, through Douyin and WeChat and Little Red Book and Pindodua and, you know, all of these things. So it's a very, very dynamic ecosystem for sales and marketing. So just going on that tangent for a second. So obviously I'm pretty familiar with most of the main channels that are there in terms of the social media side, but I am curious on... Where are the tastemakers are, the influencers? So they're they're going to feature, let's say they're featuring Villa Maria's, one of Villa Maria's wines. They're going to make their content, have their following and talk about this thing and have a direct link to some to that bottle that's already in one of the stores that they're partnered with. And they're grabbing that link so they can get, they're going to essentially get a commission off of that because they're doing a pass-through linkage through that, like an affiliate link that's going through. So they're buying directly from those platforms and it's just, they're just getting, get their cut of that money, right? Right. That's one version of the model. That's not uncommon. So you'd have somebody live streaming on Douyin, doing a whole spiel on the winery in New Zealand and the grapes and yada, yada. And meanwhile, the whole time, the products are available for the viewer to just click and purchase through that Douyin account. And then that KOL or that live streamer is going to get a percentage of that. They might in some cases be paid up front to do the appearance and then they get a percentage of the sales, et cetera. I mean, there, there are different versions of that, but there's a lot of that that goes on. And then with the big mega celebrities, it's a whole nother 
sport. I mean, it, it takes on a whole nother level. But how big is that like wine influencer space? The people that not the celebrities who can do everything, but how big or how important is it to the brands that you guys are representing to connect with these tastemakers, influencers that are really focused on wine? Yeah, I would say it's very important. It gives us very various different channels. Influencers, we are not limiting to influencers in the trade. Because influencers in the trades, they influence people who already know our brand probably. And we now look at influencers that are outside of the wine industry who are probably interested into food and beverage in general, or just someone who is a gourmet critic who likes going around in restaurants and do write up various articles on the places they have been to. For example, we did a Greystone collaboration promotion a couple of weeks ago, and we found two KOL influencers who are completely not connected with the wine industry. They've done something on wine in the past, but they're more lifestyle driven. And we got them together and we put out some content for Greystone with some food and food pairing, describing how the wine is and put through the sales channel. So that was targeting at people who are not into who are not drinking wine already, who are really new to wine, but who are interested to discover. So I think that's really, you know, small pockets of people who are out there that we haven't had reached yet. And that's the future. And what about non-influencers, like actual traditional media that covers wine? In my view, that's probably more just was like within the wine industry itself. I find interactions on wine industry mostly is just stay in the industry as it's very limited to reach out to the mass market level, especially for the wine focused media. So maybe going back to Ian, so who are the main gatekeepers of the Chinese wine market? Is it importers, the Psalms, the retailers? Like if I'm a brand and I want to get my wine into the Chinese market and you identified the demographic that's going to work for me and which geographies matter, who are the gatekeepers? Like what do I have to do to get there? I think there's layers to that, but I I genuinely believe you're not going to get anywhere here without a good importer or importers. I think, you know, the market is very complex getting that fundamental distribution network set up so that you're accessible to the consumer. There's very little value in getting a KOL or an influencer or somebody to to sing from the mountaintops about your wine if the consumer then turns around and can't find it anywhere. So finding good partners here on the import side, and we work with all of the pretty much all of the great importers here. And there are some really seriously well-established companies here and their bread and butter is selling the product and getting it out into the network and and profiting off of that and as they should. And the good ones are very, very helpful in getting the product into the right outlets and accessible to the consumer. Then you can start thinking about, okay, how do I create buzz around this wine? How do I grab the attention of the consumer and hook them and get them interested to say, oh, wow, this this looks like an interesting interesting wine, maybe a new wine I haven't tried before, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the market entry gateway is so essential and it's so important to find good partners here. It doesn't necessarily have to be one. I think the days of single sole exclusive importers being the only way to go to China is no longer valid. It still exists. And for many producers, we advise it. For many producers, we still think that's a good way to go. Find one really good partner, work with them on an exclusive basis and build your market here in China with them as your partner. But in other instances, we have five, six, seven importers that are addressing different channels, different regions. So there's a bit more of a patchwork or a jigsaw puzzle. But I feel in my bones there's a different reaction to distributors 
in North America than you need to think about here in China. I feel like there's a sort of necessary evil approach to to distributors and perhaps in Europe to an extent as well. I just feel like the approach to here needs to be very different, you know, view them as partners, work with them closely. They can add so much value to your China strategy if you find the right folks and you work with them properly. How many importers are that you would say are set up to really handle a significant brand, a Western brand, or, I mean, obviously you mentioned it's fragmented already, but I'm just curious on how many players are there really in the space that a brand could be considering? So there's a lot. I mean, I, I think there are different sizes and shapes. There are direct-to-consumer companies that import directly now. Nicole, I think of Vinehu as a great company that we work with that buys wine directly from producers and then has a very vibrant, very dynamic direct-to-consumer platform dedicated to wine and, and increasingly a little bit of spirits. So they basically there, you're dealing with an importer who then turns around and has this great marketing platform that sells, it's sort of like wine.com or or I guess somebody like that. There's no three-tier system here, right? So they buy directly from the winery, they sell and market directly to the consumer. And then there are any number of different guys like that, Wiki Wines down in the South. I mean, there's a lot of different types of that size and shape. There are the big sort of ASC, Summergate, Torres, CWS, et cetera, the guys that have big sales teams and the traditional imported distributors who typically they do work on an exclusive basis, and, and uh, but they have great distribution in on-trade, off-trade, online. They're what we call the omni-channel distributors, so they're pretty much going everywhere, maybe even airlines, convenience store chains, like you name it, wherever. They're, they're trying to sell wherever wine can be sold, basically. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum, and uh, how many are there? I mean, I don't know, thousands? Uh, if you were to think about all the different permutations and sizes and shapes, guys that are channel specialists, guys that are regional specialists, there's quite an array. And hence the need to either find a really, really good partner that fits your product and your brand and partner with them, or try to navigate that sort of landscape of different importers in different channels and regions, which obviously is where we help a lot to try to stitch that together. So yeah, I mean, I I think they're It's not easy. No one absolutely should think that it's easy. And you can imagine the really big established importers are getting bombarded with offers and proposals and brands. And you're lucky to get in with an ASC or Summergate or Torres or one of those guys because they have pretty full decks. It's tough to get in with those guys. So if any producer can, you you should, in a sense, consider yourself lucky. But there are lots of other options. There are lots of ways to go to market. That fragmentation can also, in a sense, can be an advantage because you can go to market in so many different ways. We could probably talk for several weeks on that topic. (laughs) (laughs) Switching gears a little bit, we mentioned that China in and of itself is a pretty big wine-growing country. You said 100, 125 million nine-liter cases or so produced. Is that all consumed domestically or is a good part of that exported? There is an increase on exports, that's for sure. The, the percentage is still pretty small. Majority is still consumed in China. Like Ian said, there were traditional names like the Great Wall, the Changyu. Those are probably mostly consumed domestically. But Changyu, for example, they do have exports section. And I think they... They have. Uh, they even have a German winemaker who's working for them, and a small percentage gets sent here and there in the world. 
And on the other side, the premium, the boutique wineries that we mentioned, all the names we mentioned earlier, those a lot are looking at export. For example, maybe a bigger percentage for for export. Their production is already quite small. More average. Wineries they can produce probably like a hundred thousand bottles or even less, fifty thousand bottles. That's the size that they have, and a lot of those are aimed at exporting. And that's from、uh, you know the, the region of Ningxia, which is quite renowned wine producing region, premium wine producing region in China right now. That's a very different brand proposition compared to Changyu or Great Wall, also. And so, what's the sort of the I don't know value prop or the rationale for The Chinese consuming their domestic wines—is it like national pride, or is it just it's great quality at great price? Yeah, I think there's probably a, a part of pride there. I mean, the government has been promoting this patriotic towards Chinese brand in the past years, so that probably helps in some way. But I would say recognizing the value, recognizing the quality is one thing, and supporting local business here. A lot of the wines are sold through distribution, and then that's you know kind of the the middle gatekeepers who consider okay, I'll help you on distribution your wine to my networks and a lot of business corporates and consumers who look at the wines and a lot of from discovery journey. Most people know Great Wall and Jiangyu. They know what the price are. And then now they look at the premium production, and they want to discover okay why this is more expensive. What is good in there, and understanding actually China does produce really good wine. That's also a part of that, I think. Interesting. So according to your market report in 2021, the U.S. was only the ninth largest exporter by volume and sixth largest value into China, nearly 20x smaller than France. What is the perception of U.S. wines in China? Yeah, I need to do more work for my compatriots. I think. Yeah, so I mean that's partly reflective of the fact that there were punitive tariffs that were thrown on on American wine, similar to Australia, but not as severe. A couple of years before the Australia situation emerged, so there was a bit of a trade war thing going on between the U.S. and China, and California wine, American wine, suffered from that, and there was definitely a decline as a result of that. There's no question. It's important for people to to understand that. When the Chinese government says, "Okay, we're imposing punitive tariffs on this particular product," it's not just the tariff that's the problem. It then becomes sort of taboo to appear at a dinner with government officials with a wine that has been slapped with punitive tariffs by that very government. So it, it becomes sort of taboo to drink the wine from that region, and, and Australia is facing the same challenge. It isn't just the tariffs. It's a signal from the government that this is not approved, and therefore we don't want to see it on your table. Do you know what I mean? And there, there's a very different environment here related to that sort of phenomenon. That would obviously never happen in, in the United States, or it wouldn't it wouldn't happen anywhere near that same way. But let me be frank: the U.S. category of wine was not exactly firing on all cylinders prior to that either. So it sort of it falls into an interesting. Place in the market here where it doesn't have the legacy heritage and prestige of Tuscany, Burgundy, or Bordeaux, but it has the prices. You know, when you look at Napa, for example, and it just the United States just doesn't have the the image or the perceived standing in the world as a great a great winemaking country. 
Now, obviously, Chile is an example of a country that when we started Summergate in 99, people didn't even know wine was made in Chile here in China. So it isn't necessarily a, a necessary obstacle to creating a category. And, and I think California wine and American wine in general should stand up in the market here and do a lot better. I'll be very honest. I find a lot of the premium American producers are very America-centric. Very few of them are really well geared for exports, to be honest. You know, I worked for many, many years with Ridge, which is one of the great exceptions to that. They're an extraordinary exporter. They're very savvy at export markets. They do extremely well in Asia. But there aren't so many of those. You have a few prestige brands that collectors are looking for. So you have the Opus One and Harlan and but yeah, generally speaking, that hasn't translated into broader market commercial success for the U.S. wine category. Got it. And in terms of doing a comparison, it sounds like the U.S. wines now, because of additional tariffs, are taxed at a higher rate than, say, the French counterparts at the same price, the base price point. What I would say is you have actually three tiers. So you have the baseline, which is a country like France, which is taxed at the normal import duty rate for wine. Then you have the free trade agreement countries like Chile, Australia, et cetera, who don't have import duties at all. I mean, obviously, Australia does now, but in normal circumstances, they don't they don't have import duties and taxes. They have a free trade, a bilateral free trade agreement with China, which has eliminated those import duties. And then you have the United States sitting above all of that with additional import duties and taxes imposed as a result of the trade war. So you sort of you have anybody who's been tagged with punitive tariffs for whatever reason. Then you have the baseline, which is where France is today or Italy. And then you have the guys who have free trade agreements and have even much greater reduced import duties and taxes. So like use an example like Ridge, the Ridge Montebello here is going to be around $200. Something like that in the China market would be double, triple? Probably double that. I would say rule of thumb, I would say about double that. Okay, but something like a Chateau de Snell, they're going to be not double. They're the same kind of... They'll be probably 1.5, whereas a premium Australian wine might even be able to achieve parity because of, I mean, again, not right now with this current tariffs, but but a premium Chilean wine, a Don Melchor or a Montezem, Tizalfa, Montezfali, I mean, they might even be able to achieve parity with, for example, the U.S. market. So yeah, I mean, you there is a significant market price advantage based on, you know, the China t- import duties and taxes are relatively high. It's 48, the baseline is 48.5% of landed CIF cost. That's the baseline. So that's France, Italy, anybody without a free trade agreement. Then you have the guys that are paying extra tariffs like the US and Australia right now above that. And then below that, Chile, for example, New Zealand, both have free trade agreements with China. They would come in at a, I think, Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong, about 26%. Yeah, around there. Yeah. So the net aggregate result of import consumption tax and VAT is about 26%. So you have about 26% for Chile, New Zealand, and the others that have free trade agreements, 48.5% for everybody else. And then you've got the guys like the USA and Australia who've been tagged with punitive tariffs. So extrapolating that out, you already talked about, hey, the US market wasn't doing great in China already. This tariff's not definitely not helping. On the flip side, so obviously Australia had a huge boon there. They're now in the doghouse. But Chile and other countries that and New Zealand, how is that lowering or getting those free trade agreements kind of like change their favorability and their actual consumer behavior around those brands? Obviously, the price point's going to be a lot more affordable given all things being equal. 
Yeah. So it's, it's been interesting to see how the market here has reacted to the basically the abdication of the market by Australia. So Australia has gone just has just gone off a cliff. And uh, France has actually been quite a big beneficiary of that. Interestingly, I think a lot of the the penfolds, what I mentioned before, the bin 389, bin 407, that premium penfolds consumption that was somewhat conspicuous consumption, business entertaining, that went back to France in large portion. And then countries like New Zealand, but also South Africa actually did quite well, where, where I think many importers were looking to replace their Australian commercial brands. So the likes of a, of a Rawson's Retreat or a Yellowtail or something like that. And they, they have Chilean already. They probably maybe have Argentinian already, but South Africa, many importers weren't even participating in that category. So South Africa actually started shipping a lot of wine to China post-Australia ban. And so how supportive is the Chinese government with these wine imports into China? I mean, are they going out seeking specific countries for these specific wine or these just larger trade negotiations across the whole domestic product? You mean the free trade agreements that they have or just... The free trade agreements. Yeah. Is that specifically for wine or is that a generic free trade agreement? No, they're typically very wide ranging bilateral free trade agreements that cover a whole range of products. But typically wine is included and tends to be a real beneficiary of that. I mean, Chile and New Zealand are two great examples. Australia was a good example prior. And it also, it gives, it's sort of also the flip side of what I was just describing. When the government imposes punitive tariffs, they're signaling to the trade and the consumer that we don't look with favor on this wine. When they offer a free trade agreement and they reduce the import duties and tariffs, it's the opposite. It's we're saying we do favor these wines and we do favor the the wines from this country. And it's a signal that we encourage people to import wine from this country because we've offered a duty reduction for them to bring their wines in. So it's an important thing. And it's had a big impact for Chile. I think Chile was a huge beneficiary of the free trade agreement, probably more than anybody. Chile's number two category in China now, very strong and, and growing, growing quite well. So one last question on the import. So are you seeing any evidence that the Chinese government is favoring domestic production or trying to make it encourage people to buy domestically as opposed to internationally? You've seen this in the technology space and in these social platforms where the government tries to wean people off of the international and onto a domestic product. I'm just curious if that's happening at all on the, on the wine industry. I'll weigh in on that and then maybe pass over to Nicole. But I think it's not a strategic industry. So there isn't really that much of a leaning in by the government. But I do believe that there is a degree of encouragement, certainly. I mean, I think that planting programs in, in Ningxia were very much supported by the government. I think it, we would be remiss not to mention the Guochao phenomenon, which is a national pride phenomenon that's really developed over the last two or three years here in China. It's widely talked about and discussed, and, and it basically is, there's a sort of a consumer movement to buy Chinese and, and to be proud of Chinese products. And I don't know that that's, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have conspiracy theories about the origins of all of that, but I mean, I, I think it's genuinely grassroots. I think it's genuinely a homegrown thing. So that that's a very real phenomenon. And I think we're seeing that in, in a lot of different areas. But I don't think any of this stuff is black and white. And I don't think it precludes the development of a good, healthy imported wine market at the same time. Yeah. And just to add on that, I think the government support is probably mostly happening on establishment of the wineries, of vineyard plantings, of different regions. Ningxia is not a rich region. In China, with the landscape, you know, it's very dry, it's very difficult to grow anything. 
So wine, vines are actually one of the, that's why it's one of the best fit. And I know for a fact that the Ningxia government has been trying to increase that, trying to encourage that because to boost the economy over there. And that's really that what we are seeing. But on the consumer side, I don't think we're seeing much of a leaning on government, leaning on pushing consumers to buy. But as Ian was saying, there's a, this Guotao movement and really encouraging grassroots consumers to, to enjoy products and, that are made in China. And for consumers, they, they can see what's really on the label with there is no language barriers anymore. And it's a very, very different, let's say, very different landscape. And consumer, as Chinese consumer, you know, China grew from a very poor country, a developing country to the life that we have today especially the post-90s, they are generally having some more pride when they're buying China-made products, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that the Chinese consumers and getting them interested in your brands is the number one way of building a brand in China. How does that relate to the wine education and building of and education building the Chinese wine culture? Yeah, that's definitely a key piece in China. WCT is the most established education organization or trust, has been having a very strong growth in China until last year, <laughs> sometime last year, I think mid last year, that they had to pull stop to pull a stop to all their activities. But China, before that, China was the number two largest registration in terms of student numbers for WCT across the world. So that's really a very interesting phenomenon to see, you know, China as a new country, as a young market. And the consumer curiosity or younger generation, the drive for them to take on a certain class to understand wine, it's really interesting to see. And that's really helping the wine industry, the future wine industry to grow as well. People understanding what they are drinking, understanding the label, understanding why this is like this and why that is like that. That's a key piece. Could you give us a little insight onto why exactly the WSCT was banned? And, and is there a time frame for that getting lifted? Or should, should Robert and I start like a wine school in China? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the schools are here. I, I think uh, WSCT just, it was basically a registration hiccup. And I think they've sorted it out. I think that they're on the cusp of, of getting back up and running. The business environment here, what sort of company do you register? And what kind of business license do you get? And what is your scope of business? And where do you pay your tax and all that sort of thing? And it was, it sometimes it can be very confusing. And I think that they found themselves in a situation where they just had to re-register under a different format, and they've gone ahead and done that. And they just had to suspend their operations here for a little while. And I, I fully suspect they'll get back up to full steam, and they are. I mean, I know that I know that they've reconciled all of that, and it's going to get back up and running. And to Nicole's point, I would be very surprised if China didn't become the number one source of registered students for WSCT very, very soon after they get back up and running. I mean, just not the least of which, just purely because of mass. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a little hard for the UK to compete with China in terms of number of students who want to learn about wine. You know what I mean? So, but it does demonstrate how much interest there is in really learning about the product, really understanding it, being able to talk about it, being able to go to dinner with your friends and, and tell interesting stories about how the wine is made and what does this grape really mean? And, and, you know, there's a lot of prestige attached to that, which we see in Japan as well, for example, and, and frankly, we probably see in New York City. And so I think that's going to continue 
that's going to continue to carry on. And there are a lot of institutions, good institutions, Dragon Phoenix, Grapia, even, you know, there's a lot of different organizations already set up here. But, you know, if you want to come out here and set up, we'll help you. We'll, we're happy to see you guys out here. No problem. Well, we'll have to build our business plan. <laughs> so are there other venues or promotional activities that are effective at getting Chinese consumers excited about wine, be it wine in general or very specific wines? Like I know in the U.S. there's like all these wine fairs and events. Uh, we talked about social media, but even like things like I'm a big fan of the manga comic book, The Drops of God, but like things that aren't traditional wine media that are really effective for the Chinese market. Yeah, it's probably quite similar on that front. There are a lot of wine festivals. There's natural wine festivals, especially like in Shanghai and Beijing, Shenzhen, a city in the south. Different markets, like weekend markets, where we have a, a few stands from wine producers or social media. I mean, at the end of the day, wine is something that consumers need to try. So the more opportunity we gave them through different channels to get them to try, the better excitement we probably can get from consumers. So tastings in a supermarket or a picnic show where you can have different bottles out there. It's all, and also a lot of influence with the friend circle. We call them uh, the opinion consumers, people who have a genuine love of food and wine and they share their love with their friends. Small, small groups, but it's kind of the word of mouth influence. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting one to hone in on. I think the, that landscape of the big mass key opinion leader is known to be bought and paid for more and more now these days. And so therefore, the micro-influencer, who is very influential within their group of friends and colleagues, who's known to be sort of the wine geek within the group, who's known to have some knowledge about wine, that person is eminently trusted by their circle. And therefore, what they're talking about is unimpeachable, right? So it's a very, very, but it's very micro. It's very fragmented. It's very spread. That's something we've been looking at closely. I mean, how do you sort of access that and and stimulate that? And, and, and it's a challenge. It's an interesting challenge, but it's a challenge. And, I, you know, again, that concept of fragmentation, I think, applies, too, as well to the idea of are there platforms or wine fairs or magazines or there's no one. Uh, you know, I've again, it's been since 1999 looking for the magic silver bullet. It, it ain't there. Right. Uh, there, there's nothing. There's no one silver bullet. There's a lot of just nuts and bolts, brick by brick. I mean, they, my old colleagues at Summergate used to talk, hear me talk about brick by brick, one brick at a time, one outlet, and we just build the market. There's no one big influencer or power move that you can make that's going to deliver the whole market. It just doesn't exist. Wow, we covered a lot of range here for the China market. So I want to thank you both. But we want to end the show on a slightly personal note. So obviously you guys have got just gotten out of lockdown, but I'm curious over this whole pandemic period, what was the best bottle of wine you've had and who did you share it with? Maybe we can start with you, Nicole. I've had so many for <laughs> uh, the year. And also during the past two months of locking down at home, we were literally downing a bottle of wine a day and keeping the doctor away. But I think, yeah, I've really had a lot that I cannot really name just one producer. But the best ones are definitely the day going out of lockdown and just sharing with friends. That was the moment where I was like, oh, this is uh, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, finally. Yeah. 
Yeah, mine mine is similar, but I can be more specific. And I promise I am not shilling for Ridge here. But right after lockdown, I went with three of my very good friends and we had dinner at Tyon Table, which is a, a newly minted Michelin three-star restaurant here in Shanghai. It's fabulous restaurant. Uh, Stefan Stiller is the is founder and the chef. And we had a bottle of Ridge Montebello 2004, which interestingly was the year that we came out of the SARS pandemic, which was the previous, the previous iteration of that here in China. You know, we'd been locked in, confined at home for two months, sat around the, the dining bar at Tyon Table with three of my good friends, had a bottle of Ridge Montebello and, and Stefan's incredible food. And that was, it was amazing. That was very, very memorable. It's hard not to enjoy a bottle of Ridge Montebello, no matter how old it is. <laughs> right. Yes, I agree. We want to thank you both uh, for such an insightful episode or maybe two episodes. And so that we can uh, share this with our listeners who are largely U.S. and European based. Everybody's always asking about the China market. It's obviously helpful for me as we do uh, <laughs> these exams, having good examples about the China market. So thank you both. Uh, we really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.